The title this morning is The Fruit of Obedience to Jesus, if you're taking notes. We're in John 2, 1 to 12. John 2, 1 to 12. In our study of John's gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus, we come to another well-known text. And it's not well-known in the same way that like John 3.16 is known. We memorize that verse. It's not the same. uh, It doesn't strike our memory in the same way as say John 14. Uh, There's so many passages that are so memorable in John's gospel. It's not memorable in those same ways. Instead, the reason why this story is so memorable is because it's the first miracle or sign, as John calls it, that Jesus performed that's recorded in John's gospel. There are only six uh, that John records, signs that Jesus performed that he specifically refers to as signs, and this is the very first one. And so we remember this story, not because, again, there's anything super quotable or remarkable or memorable for us personally about the story, but simply because it's the first sign that Jesus performed. The sign itself, though, was truly incredible for those who got to experience it, but what we're going to discover today is that it's even more incredible because of what it points forward to, what it means and symbolizes in the life of the believer. So let's go ahead and read it. John 2, 1 through 12. As we read it, I want you to focus on verse 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now." This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This story, as we just read, takes place three days after Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel at the end of chapter one, which is what we studied last week. Uh, This event concludes Jesus' first week of ministry. It started, as we looked at last week, with John's testimonial about Jesus, claiming, behold, this is the Lamb of God. And then he continues in talking about what his baptism was like. And then we see these five testimonies of these individuals who had an encounter with Jesus and 
began to follow him, but his first week of ministry, which was filled with a lot, ends here at a wedding that was taking place in Cana. And it ends with what John refers to in verse 11 as the first of his signs. And as I thought about that, there's something unique, something special, something powerful and memorable about the fact that this miracle, this sign was the first one that Jesus performed. Let me illustrate what I mean. Um, I bet you probably couldn't name, at least majority, what the next six signs are that Jesus did. But you can think about what his first one was. Even if you don't know that much about the Bible, you've probably heard of the story of when Jesus turned water into wine. If you were asked in a game of Bible trivia, what was the first miracle that Jesus did? You would say, oh, when Jesus turned water into wine. And I think this is part of the point that John is making. There's something memorable, something important about the first experience with Jesus. For example, I remember the first movie I went and saw when I was a little kid. I was in sixth grade, and I saw Twister in the movies. I still remember the first sermon I preached here. Dave, do you remember? What was it? Short. It was short. (laughs) That would be memorable. Um, No, it was John 21. I still remember the first time I preached this text, John 2. It was in my preaching class in school. But this is what we do, right? As, as parents even, we cherish the first experiences with our kids, the first words out of their mouths, the first time they crawl, the first time they take their first steps, the first time they back talk at us, um, and we loathe everyone after that. Uh, my wife was teasing my mother the other day because my mom called her to tell her that she finally threw away all of our baby teeth. Because this is what mothers do, some at least, my mother did, held on to teeth for almost 40 years, the first teeth that her children lost, because there's something powerful or special about it. Meanwhile, my wife's like, you might as well get rid of them now because they'll be thrown away eventually. (laughs) So my mom called her and my wife was teasing her about it. But John is drawing out all of the force of this sign that Jesus did by highlighting the fact that it was the first of his signs. But Jesus himself, I think, was using this opportunity as well. If there was going to be more signs in the future, Jesus wanted to make sure that the first one that he did communicated something memorable, something important about who he was and who he is and what he came to do and how all of that has an impact on your life and on my life. And I think there's several ways that we could approach this text. But the point I want to make to you from the story based on all that I just said is this. When you obey Jesus, your faith will grow and you will experience His glory through personal transformation and renewal. That's a lot, but let me say it again. When you obey Jesus, your faith will grow and you will experience his glory through personal transformation and renewal. Let's look at the story closer and and see how that point is developed. You may have noticed 
that the story follows the basic structure of most stories. Look at it with me. We have the setting in verses 1 and 2. Jesus is at a wedding in Cana and his mother and disciples are there. Okay, we've got the setting. Then we've got the conflict in verse 3. The wine has run out. It reminds me of on the Pirates of the Caribbean, right? When Johnny Depp's like, why is the rum gone? You know? The rising action then comes after the conflict. It's described in verses 4 through 8, leading us to a point of tension at the end where we're left wondering, they took it to the master of the feast. What's going to happen? But then the climax of the story occurs in verse 9 where the master of the feast tasted the water that had become wine. And then you have the resolution in 9 and 10 where the master of the feast called for the bridegroom and praised him for giving the best wine at the end. And then, and then of course, we have the new setting in verses 11 and 12 with John describing what this sign did in the lives of his disciples, and how afterward they all went down to Capernaum. And so what I want to do is walk through the parts of the story with you and consider the content and the themes that are highlighted within and to sort of support this main point I'm making that, again, when you obey Jesus, your faith will grow and you will experience his glory through personal transformation and renewal. Let's start by looking at the setting John makes mention that this happened on the third day. Now, I already mentioned that, that this refers to the fact that it was three days after Jesus' encounter with Nathaniel. But some readers see a not-so-subtle yet obvious hint toward the fact that Jesus also rose again on the third day. And they wonder, is John alluding to something, his crucifixion and then ultimate resurrection in the future. And, and there may be some merit to that proposition, but it doesn't really actually have a lot of significance to the story, so we won't make much of it here. But what is significant is not so much that this took place three days later, but that it took place at a wedding. Weddings, like in most cultures, are special events. They mark the beginning of two individuals coming together to form a new family. In one sense, a, a wedding is a celebration of transformation, of two people, individuals coming together, independent lives, but now becoming dependent on one another. This is why weddings are so special, is because we're seeing transformation right in front of us. They're special in our day, and they were incredibly special and significant in Jesus' day. In fact, it was common in these days for a wedding to last an entire week. That's how special they were. But the fact that this sign took place at a wedding has even greater significance beyond just this one couple coming together. The fact that this sign takes place at a wedding points both to the past and to the future. It points to the past by reminding us that it was God who created marriage. And through the institution of marriage, he gives people, people made in his image, a picture of what a covenant commitment looks like. Marriage, according to God's design, is a lifelong relationship where we can experience love and intimacy, which is, as we know, never to be broken or polluted. Marriage is like this because God is using that context to remind us of this is the kind of relationship he wants with us, which is how it also points to the future. 
In John's other book, the book of Revelation, John writes about a future wedding. He calls it the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is the celebration of God's people being united together with Jesus at the end of the age. And what's incredible about that event is that, again, it's depicted as a wedding, a celebration, much like John is describing here that Jesus is at. And all the things that I just said, more than likely the characters in the story would not have made those connections, looking to the past, looking to the future, but the early readers of John's gospel, they certainly would have made those connections, and so we would be wise in seeing them as well. There is great significance to the fact that Jesus performed this first sign at a wedding for all those reasons I just mentioned. That's the setting Jesus is at a wedding and his mother and his disciples are there. But there's a problem in verse 3. The problem in the conflict is this. They have run out of wine at the wedding. And Jesus' mother comes and tells Jesus about it. Now what's important I think for us to understand about this culture back then and, and even just throughout the Bible is that wine was a symbol of God's abundant blessing for his people, while the lack of wine symbolizes actually God's curse on his people. What this means for the context of a wedding is that for them to run out of wine at their wedding would have been a symbol that God was not blessing this union and actually cursing this marriage. This belief was so strongly held that if a wedding celebration were to run out of wine, the groom actually could have been sued by the wife's family. This was a big deal. This wasn't something that was like, oh man, now the party has to stop. <laughs> We've run out of wine. It, it wasn't that at all. It would, have been, it would have had lifelong ramifications for this couple. But as a part of the story and its relevance for the sign of Jesus that he's about to perform, it points to the fact that I, I think all of us, this is what it's pointing to, that apart from God's provision, all of us are in a depleted state. All of us rest outside of God's grace under a curse. John's going to write later on in chapter 3 that whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already. I think about these people at the party, and they're just kind of living it up in the moment. They have no idea that the party is about to come to a crashing end. And that's what life is like. We're just living day by day, uh, uh, at times uh, apart from God, and not even realizing that the party is all going to come to an end real soon, if not for God's provision. And this, this conflict, this moment, points to that fact, that we have a real problem on our hands, and apart from God's intervention, we are doomed to shame and cursing. But the bulk of the story takes place in verse 4 and 8 in the rising action. We see in the conflict that Jesus' mother comes to him, explains the problem. We've run out of wine. And in verse 4, we see this really odd response from Jesus when he says back to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And, and it kind of makes you wonder... Did Jesus' mother want him to perform a miracle? Did she have some ulterior motive in this request? Or was she just like, I don't know, most moms, immersed in the moment and thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so overwhelmed. 
I'm just going to someone that I know, someone that I can trust, and saying, hey, can you please just help me out here? They've run out of wine. Can we think about this together? Maybe it was just a truly human moment. It's difficult to speculate what Mary was expecting Jesus to do with this statement. They've run out of wine. But what is clear is that though we don't know where Mary's mind was, we do know where Jesus' mind was. He was at a wedding, but his mind was thinking about something else. Specifically, he's thinking about his hour. This is a phrase that we'll see repeated in John's gospel. And in most cases, it's a reference to Jesus' final act when he will go to the cross and suffer and die in man's place and pay for the price of man's sins. He's at this wedding ceremony, and yet his mind is already thinking about the cross. This is where he was. But his mother, again, was living in the moment. So I imagine that after Jesus says this, his mother's looking at him going, yeah, okay, whatever. Uh, We've got a problem here. And so with maybe she rolls her eyes a little bit, And turns to her servants who were there and says, you know what, just do whatever he tells you to do. And again, we need to pay attention to what John is doing in this story. Because she turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you to do. And we assume, I think, as we read the story, that these servants, at least most of them, were the disciples of Jesus who were there with him. Since at the end, it says that the disciples believed in him. But that's not what they were called. They're not called the disciples here. They're called servants. And John, I think, is using that intentionally because the essential quality of a servant is that servants serve, but servants obey whatever their master tells them to do. And so Mary tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. In other words, obey Jesus regardless of what you think about what he tells you to do or how you feel about it or what the ramifications may be for you if you do what he tells you to do. Obey what he says. What's fascinating about this story is that the first thing these servants are told to do is he he, he doesn't tell them or she doesn't tell them believe in Jesus and then obey him. She doesn't say follow Jesus and then obey him. Instead, she just says, just do whatever he says to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he's a famous author, and he wrote the book, it's a well-known book called The Cost of Discipleship, but he spends a great deal of time talking about the importance of obedience in the life of the Christian, and he talks a lot about the relationship between faith and obedience in the Christian life, but he writes this memorable quote. He says, only he who believes is obedient And only he who is obedient believes. You see, in most cases, faith precedes obedience. The equation goes like this. I believe in Jesus, therefore I will obey whatever he tells me to do. However, sometimes, and Bonhoeffer points this out in the book, that obedience sometimes precedes even belief. We obey Jesus because of who he is, and yet there are things we don't know about him. We don't know how things are going to turn out in the end. But we obey because of who he is. 
And as we obey, we will discover more and more and more about him. And, and that process, I think, is certainly demonstrated in this story. The servants first obeyed. But it was because they obeyed, they got to experience and participate in an incredible miracle. And as a result, they believed in Jesus. Their faith was increasing. So what's the point that John is trying to make? The point he's trying to make is that even as you are learning about Jesus, even as you're learning about who he is and what he is like and how he works in your life and in other people's lives, you need to right now resolve in your heart and in your mind that whatever he tells you to do or not do, you will do it. I will be obedient to Jesus. And though you may not, again, always understand why or to what end that obedience is going to take you, you can know for sure this, this point. When you obey Jesus, your faith is going to grow and you will experience his glory through personal transformation and renewal. Which let's talk maybe about those ideas in the story, transformation and renewal through the instruction that Jesus gives. In verses 6 and 7, we read that Jesus told the servants to take six large stone jars. These jars were used, as he describes, for the Jewish rites of purification, for, for washing and cleansing. And he tells them, hey, take those jars that were a symbol of old ways and go fill them up with water. But then he says, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And I don't know about you, but if I was a servant in this moment, I'd be thinking, well, you want me to do what? They need wine. <laughs> I'm supposed to carry, well, I mean, I couldn't carry a hundred and what, however many gallons that was. But you want me to carry this to the master of the feast and think that it's all going to be okay for me? But what does it say they did? says they took it. They obeyed. And again, we're in the story and we're wondering, probably the same thing we're, they're wondering, what the heck is going on? <laughs> what is about to happen? I thought they needed wine, not water, and still they obeyed. They risked their own necks, their reputation. This could all go sideways, and yet still they obeyed. But there's a significant point being made by the fact that these vessels that Jesus chose to use were six stone jars used for ceremonial washing. These were symbols of what was required to remain ceremonially clean before God and others. And you had to wash yourself. And the number six is also significant because it highlights the fact that it's short of seven, which is the number of completion. In other words, this practice that they were doing was insufficient it was helpful, but it was insufficient. It could not make someone whole or complete before God. And Jesus was going to use this to make a point about who he is and what he has come to do, which takes us to the climax of the story in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, a transformation occurred. A renewal happened. All this tension is built up in the story, and then we get to verse 9, and we see, oh my gosh, it all worked out in the end, thank God. We see that Jesus brought a resolution to the immediate need by turning water into wine. But it wasn't just the transformation 
from water to wine that was incredible, that's being highlighted here. It, it gets even greater, right? Because there is a great, great quantity and a great quality to the wine as well. Just by a simple calculation, even I can do it, uh, Jesus produced between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That is a ridiculous amount of wine. But this wasn't like boxed wine. What's even more fascinating is even as the quantity went up, the quality did not go down. Instead, the master of the feast referred to it as the good wine, the best wine. I mean, certainly it started with pretty good, but it didn't, it didn't go down from there. This was an incredible thing that Jesus did for this couple at their wedding. But it's important for us to stop and think, what is John wanting us to see in the sign? What is the sign pointing us to? Because the sign itself is not the most important thing. It's what it's pointing us to. And I think there's several themes for us to consider. First, Jesus has come to bring renewal of the old religious rituals and to now pour out spiritual blessings by his grace. By taking these jars used for purification and transformation or transforming them in, into wine, Jesus is making a profound statement that by his arrival, he will bring a complete and total renewal and transformation to the lives of his people. Second, the quantity of the wine points to the fact that the grace and the blessings that Jesus provides are abundant. There is no limit to his grace. It does not run out or run dry. The party never stops, metaphorically speaking, with Jesus. His power is not limited, and neither is his care and concern for his people. Third, the quality of the wine points to the fact that the transformation and renewal that Jesus brings into the lives of his people is always, always good. It's always the best. You know, we think about our lives and we think, man, if I had an ideal situation, it would be this. And we dream about that. And the Lord's like, dude, your desires are far too small for what I want to do in your life. What we think we would like Jesus to do for us is not good enough. He wants to do even greater things. And lastly, this sign reveals Jesus' power of creation, over creation, and how he has the ability and desire to recreate that which he made but was destroyed by sin. Back in chapter 1, John wrote that Jesus was there, the Word, in the beginning, and that all things were made through him and by him. And what this story reveals to us is that Jesus continues to exercise power over his creation. What it adds, though, is the fact that Jesus desires to transform and renew the creation that was broken by sin and turn it into something that was even better and greater than it was when it started. Which, if you think about it, that's really good news for us. Because what all that means is that through faith, through obedience to Jesus, we have the hope of becoming different people. We often wonder to ourselves, can we really change? And the answer is yes. Through Christ and His power and His work in our lives, we absolutely have the hope 
of renewal and transformation. Paul described this work of the gospel in 2 Corinthians 5 in this way. This is a memorable verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Friends, that's good news this morning. What's even better news? Is that all we need to do in order to experience that renewal, that transformation, that glory that Jesus manifests in the lives of his people? All we need to do is just do what he tells us to do. Stop doing the things that he tells us not to do. Just obey. Obey him. And this story is emphasizing that when you obey Jesus... Your faith is going to grow. You're not always going to understand the end. And you're not always going to be able to make sense logically, rationally for what he's doing. But he, it will always be good for you, for the people that you know and love. Your faith will grow. You will experience his glory through personal transformation and renewal. You'll get to the other side and be like, oh, now I know what he was doing. That's the Joseph story, right? Joseph gets to the end and goes, oh, I get it. I get what God was doing this whole time. Which brings us to the last part of the story, the new setting. In verse 11 and 12, John explains that in this first sign Jesus did, he manifested his glory, and that the effect of that manifested glory, that the effect that it had on his disciples was they believed in him. First they obeyed, but then the result was that their faith grew. But it makes you wonder, makes me wonder at least, and I don't mean to diminish how incredible the sign was, but when you just consider it on its own, I mean, it's okay, so we turned water into wine. Now you're just going to like commit your life to him and follow him forever? Like, I'm just kind of like, maybe he was an illusionist, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's a great thing, but they believed in him. It makes you wonder, was there more to this sign going on that's not immediately on the surface for us? And I think the, that there is. And I think the answer is actually found back in the Old Testament in Isaiah 25. You see, Isaiah 25 is a cherished passage by the Jewish people because it was a text that looked forward to a day when the Messiah was going to come. And it describes what that day is going to be like. And this is a part of what Isaiah writes in chapter 25, it says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. When the disciples saw what Jesus did, when he made water into wine, their minds would have immediately thought of Isaiah 25. And the words 
of Isaiah and how when the Messiah comes, it's going to be like this. It's going to be a day of celebration. It's going to be a day of renewal. It's going to be day, a, a day of transformation. It's going to be a day where all the tears are wiped away and death is swallowed up in victory. And the reproach or the curse of his people are, is going to be taken away. That is how great this day is going to be. And it's going to be said on that day, behold, this is your God. Fredding's, the, the, the wedding at Cana was an announcement by Jesus that the Messiah had come and that his people should be glad and rejoice in his salvation. So the point I've been arguing throughout the sermon is this, when you obey Jesus, your faith will grow and you will experience his glory through personal transformation and renewal. You know, for some of you, this means... Maybe it's a challenge to you, or maybe it's confronting you, that actually when you look at your life, you've been living a life of disobedience. You know the right thing to do, and you know the wrong thing to do, and you've been doing the wrong thing and ignoring the right thing. And what you need to do is look at this story and say, do I want to experience the glory of God in my life? Do I want to experience renewal and transformation, or do I want to experience well, the effect of my own choices. The answer to that is whether or not you choose to obey or disobey. This story is saying you should probably obey if you want to be blessed in your life. I mean, as parents, don't we say this like to our kids? And yet as adults, we ignore it in our own lives when God's saying it to us. For others of you, you may not know much about Jesus. You're like maybe new to this whole Christian thing. And, and you, you may not know what he's actually telling you to do or even not do. And so maybe for you right now, this story is telling you, as you walk with him, you need to resolve right now that as you've committed your life to him in discipleship, whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do it. I don't know what that is yet, <laughs> But right now, I'm making a choice that whatever he tells me to do, despite my feelings about it, despite what others may say to me about it, I'm going to resolve right now. That's what I'm going to do and, and what I'm not going to do if Jesus tells me to not do those things. You have to resolve those things in your heart and mind now. But for all of us, just as we are called to believe in Jesus and follow him, we're also called to obey him, no matter what he calls us to do. Why don't we pray and we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and, and, and Lord, we're mindful from this story of who you are, that you are God incarnate, the word made flesh. You are the one Jesus who was prophesied of old that would come and swallow up death in victory and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And that you want to show us your glory and renew what sin has destroyed. And all you ask of us as you do those things is just follow you and do whatever you tell us to do. Not, not because you just like obedient people, but because that's the path to blessing and love, and intimacy, and all the things that you made us for. So God, help us to 
recognize that, to understand that. God, if anyone needs to repent, to turn from the ways that they've been going, I pray that they would. God, I pray for those who are maybe new to the faith, that they would resolve in their heart and minds now to obey you, knowing that you are good and that you have good plans for their lives. But God, let us be people marked not just by words of faith, but by actions of obedience. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. 